So we are continuing our series on the resurrection, and we've been spent the last, this is our third week in 1 Corinthians 15, because Paul's had a lot to say about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. But just to remember where we've been, because this has been an interesting series for me, I've learned a lot because, as I've mentioned other weeks, I'd never really dug into the resurrection that much as far as the real, looking at the reality of it and the, the real life elements of it. Again, sometimes we start treating it almost like it's mythical or something and not related to our real life. And, and that's not good because if God is real, then it matters to our real life now. So in part one, we looked at the account of the resurrection, which is the part most of us are familiar with because we've gone to church on Easter before where they talk about the resurrection. But we looked at the fact that the very story of the resurrection as contained in the Bible is not written to be easily believed. It's not a carefully constructed story that would just be a natural thing for people to believe. It's actually hard to believe, and you wouldn't write it unless it had really happened. And, and it just it really is, has all the earmark, earmarks of a real story, a true story that is being reported to us of what they experienced because it wasn't what they were expecting. Then we talked about the fact that understanding that we have this future, understanding that, that there's more to life than this, these years that we spent here on this planet, should change how we live now, just the way any kind of planning for the future, if you're planning for retirement or planning for a trip in three weeks, it changes what you do now because you're getting ready for something else. And so if we know that there's a whole lot more life after these few years or few decades that we spend on this planet, that it's going to change how we live now because our whole priority structure should change. And so it even saw the verse that said that, uh, do not be deceived, bad company can corrupt good choices, good ways of life, because when you're always hanging out with people who are living for the now, it will not help you live for later. And so it changes our lives. So in the last week, I always forget to use my notes here, so then last week we talked about the fact that what are, what are we going to be like later? And that we're going to have a different body that's adapted to a different way of life than the life now. That God's not just going to take this body and rebuild it. He's not going to take the ashes and tape them back together and give me back what I have now. That the body I'm going to have is going to be different. The radio show that played, I don't know if you listened to the show on WKDJ on, on Sundays at 8 o'clock, but the show that played this morning at 8, we talked about that, that you know, this year we've been apart, and sometimes in a year you can change a lot, you know, especially kids, you know, you can change a lot in just a year, and so then when you bump into someone, you say, wow, I, don't, I almost didn't recognize you, and sometimes when we haven't seen people for a number of years, if we, you know, go back to a high school reunion or something, or you bump into someone from the old days, and you, you might say, oh, I didn't recognize you, why? Because you got old, you got different, you changed, I mean, I look remarkably different than I did when I was in high school. All right, for one thing, just the color of my hair has profoundly changed. The amount of it has changed. Actually, I still have the same amount. It's just moved from here to here now. I don't know what that's all about, but that's a different story. But when we get to heaven, it's going to be the same way. We might not recognize each other right away, but we will be us. We will be who we are. And so we might say, oh, okay, now I know who you are. I didn't recognize you. Why? Because you changed. Because we'll all be changed with a body that's different. And yet we will still be us, and so we will be able to recognize each other. But we might not recognize each other right away, because that happens here on earth with these bodies. 
So that's what we talked about so far. And so now we dive into what Dale read for us today, the last part of 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul takes everything he's been talking about so far and takes it one step further of addressing the reality of the resurrection. Now, the early church, we, we kind of forget this, that the early church, and again, this comes back to the idea that this is not a carefully constructed story meant to be believed, because if you'll notice, God's people, and that's true of us today in ways we might not be comfortable with, we're usually playing catch-up because we're not good at listening, we're not good at learning, and we're not good at understanding God because A, we're obtuse, and B, he's really outside of our experience. So the Jews, God's people, and the church, the Jews and Gentiles of the first century, they were having a hard time catching up. Because first, they had believed for thousands of years that they knew what was going to happen. Messiah was going to appear. And when Messiah came, Messiah was going to cast off the political enemies of his people and establish a worldwide rule with God's people, the Jews, at the head of it. And suddenly just put the whole earth under his feet with the Jews. And so then when Jesus showed up, first they're like, well, that's kind of weird. He doesn't seem to be powerful. But then he started doing miracles and a bunch of people went, oh, we think we found the Messiah. And so then they knew his, his disciples, the ones we love that we read about, they were like, okay, now we know what's going to happen. He's going to overthrow Rome. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he, he keeps telling them, I'm going to die. And they're like, <laughs> he's such a kidder. And so they, they know what's going to happen, that there's going to be this big conflict and he's going to beat Rome and rule the world. And he died. Well, that's not supposed to happen. Well, I guess we got it wrong. I guess, but they didn't think that they were wrong. They thought he was wrong. Well, I guess he wasn't Messiah because we know what Messiah's going to do, and it ain't die. Okay, so he's dead. All right. And then he rose, and they're like, "No, he didn't." So they're still behind the times. But he's like, "No, no, really. Here, see here. Oh, wow, you did rise. Oh, oh, okay. Now we got it. Now you're going to establish the kingdom." He goes, "Nope." what? And so you hear them talk to him, is now the time? Now that you're back, okay, see, we, we totally missed the whole dying thing. Sorry about that. Our bad. But now, now you're going to beat the Romans. Nope. He goes, I'm going to go away. But I'm going to send my spirit, Holy Spirit, be with you, and I'm going to come back. Cool. He's coming back. Probably next week. And then a week went by, two weeks, and it was a year, and it was two years, and it was five years. And between age and persecution, people start dying. You know, my grandma died, my mom died, my brother got killed in a persecution, and they began to worry, what did we miss? What's gone wrong? I thought he was coming back, and now these guys are dying. Are they going to miss out on the kingdom? What, what's going wrong? Because again, they, they thought they understood it. Just like we, we know what's going to happen now, right? <laughs> Don't be so sure. Our track record is not one that should give you a lot of confidence. I know, here's, here's, our, here's my chart about the end of time. Yeah, good luck with that. The human race does not have a track record we should have any confidence in whatsoever. And so they were worried. They were afraid they'd miss something. And so Paul, here and in other places, especially in Corinthians... But the writers of Scripture had to keep reassuring the people, no, it's, you didn't miss it. And it's not gone wrong. And he's not slow the way people think of slowness. 
He's, 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 he's got a plan, and it's not your plan. And so here, in the passage that, that Dale read for us, he talks about this, and he opens it in verse 50. We like A lot of your Bibles, if you have headings, you have a heading after 50. It's a bad heading because 50 is the beginning, because you hear him start the next section by saying, now, so he's introducing a new thought, now I say this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So the first thing he brings up is he says, it's not going to be this body. Because they thought Jesus was going to come back and they were just going to walk into the kingdom. And so the fact that some people were dying, they were like, well, well now what happened? They died? Are they going to miss out the kingdom? He goes, dude, don't worry about their body. Your body's not going to go into the kingdom either. The fact that they're dead and you're not, that's not a problem because your body's not going into the kingdom either. What you're waiting for is, again, this idea that we are going to have a physical body. It ain't going to be this one. He goes, so even this one. So then verse 51, he says, let me tell you a mystery. Now, I don't know about you. I love mystery shows. Sherlock Holmes. I love the stories. I love the TV shows. I love a good mystery. If you watch a good mystery TV show or movie, at the beginning, they introduce you to the mystery, right? And then you've got to spend the whole show or movie or book solving the mystery. So then Paul says, I show you a mystery. You're like, ooh, let's look for clues. No, that's not what Paul means by a mystery. When the writers of Scripture say, I'm going to tell you a mystery, what they mean is we're at the end of the, we're at the, end of the book, we're at the end of the TV show, at the end of the movie, and here's, here's what happened. He's revealing the mystery, not introducing the mystery. He's like, here's something you didn't know. Let me tell you about it. So here he says, hey, let me tell you a mystery. In other words, let me tell you something you didn't know until now. But he's not introducing the mystery and you've got to solve it. He's solving it for you. They were trying to figure out, well, what happens next? He says, well, let me tell you. You didn't know this before. Let me tell you. In a moment, oh, I'm sorry. We shall not all sleep, metaphor for death. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must, be, must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So he says, so we're all going to be changed. He goes, at the end of time, a lot of us understand that it's being at the rapture, but there's a ton of Christians who also see that as happening at a different point, but however the last chronologically works out, which again, we're really bad at predicting, but when it happens, he says, we'll all be changed. Not all of us will be dead, but even those of us who are alive, new body. We will experience a new creation. And that's what he's just saying. So we're not suddenly going to go, whoa, and now I just went up to heaven. No, you're going to get, you're going to be transformed, reborn into a new flesh, a new body that is not this one. And that's his point. He goes, because this is perishable. All right? This is always breaking down. And that can't make it into the new creation. And so you're going to need a new body that doesn't break down. Hallelujah. Amen. And all God's people. No, okay. Then he says in verse 54, so that's a mystery. Not everything will be revealed. Not everything has been revealed, but now this has been revealed now. That's what he calls a mystery. Something I'm going to tell you now. Then in 54 and 55, he says... But when this happens, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, 
death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so he quotes a couple different places in the Old Testament to say, and when that comes, this will be the end of death. We've been waiting for this all our lives. That will be the moment when death is ended. And then he does what a good Bible teacher should do. He just quoted scripture, the Old Testament. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He goes, and now let me define my terms for you. He goes, well, sting, what is the sting? He says, well, sting is sin. He says, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, we don't know what that means. We can sit there and go, oh, all right, amen, hallelujah. Sting of, sting of sin is death, or sting of death is sin, amen. What does that mean? Oh, sin's bad. Whoa. Who knew? All right, let's talk about this a little bit. God is life. Separation from God is death. We tend to think of death, and we tend to only think of death in terms of our physical state. But death is a part of us far more than just when your body stops functioning. As we talked about last week, we start dying right off the bat. Babies are dying. We're all dying. The only problem is, is early on, our bodies are able to create faster than the death. And after a while, you kind of lose the ability, you know, you can't run as fast anymore, and death starts catching up, and suddenly you aren't replacing things as quickly. But we all poop. Babies, you still got to bathe them. Why? Because if you don't bathe the baby after a while, the baby's... Why? Because it's got skin dying, and we all grow hair. Well, we don't all, well, we all grow some hair. This is, this is death. Fingernails, death. We're always dying. So even when we're alive, we're dying, but there's more to death than even that, because God is life, and the Bible defines death as separation from God, because God is life. He is the source of life. He is life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is God, and death is defined as being separated from God. Okay? Death is separated from God. In the Garden of Eden, our English translations don't do it justice, but when God warned Adam and Eve about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, he said, in the day you eat of it, we, our translations say, you will die. Sounds like he's like threatening them. If you eat that, I'm going to kill you. But what he really says, what this, what the, what this says in the language is, the day you eat of this, dying you shall die. And that's why they don't translate it that way, because we'd be like, huh? Dying you shall die? And all God's people went, huh? Dying you shall die. What he's talking about is there will be a process that begins and also have happened. You will experience death and you will be experiencing death. Dying you will die. Why? Because when they rebelled, they immediately separated themselves from God. And that separation plays out more than just physically. It plays out in all areas of our lives. And so we call this the act of separation, which is sin. Because sin is when you step away from God. Anytime you step, all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God, what God is. Every time you take a step away from God, you are separating yourself from life. To be separated from life is to be dead. The act of separation we call sin. And that's what he says. He goes, the bite of death is sin because that's what that's what causes it because you have separated yourself from God you have stepped away from life then he says the trigger the power of sin 
is the law. Why? Well, because the law defines and demonstrates our tendency to separate. And Paul elsewhere, in another day, we can dig into this a lot more because Paul writes extensively about this in other places that we're not going to take the time in today. But suffice to say that Paul makes it clear that the law was given to highlight that tendency we have to separate. And so it, it is kind of the, the fuel because it causes, it, it exposes the separation. Paul said, I didn't understand what coveting was until the law came along and said, don't covet. He goes, and I realized I was coveting like crazy. Because it, it points out to you, the law points out to you that you have separated from God. But it does more than that. It doesn't just help you define the fact you're separated. It helps you understand that you have a natural human tendency to separate. Because what do we know? That the quickest way to get someone to do something is to tell them, don't. I got in trouble with my daughter first service because I, t I quoted an unnamed oldest female child of mine. <laughs> and I felt the look hit me from the back row of when she was little. And I gave, we gave her an ice cream, but told her she couldn't go in the living room because there was a carpet in the living room. And she went right up to the line between the linoleum and the carpet and stuck one toe over. She probably wouldn't have gone into the living room until we told her not to. Then she's like, I gotta go in the living room. And the law is designed to prove to you that that's what you're like. The law didn't make you that way. You are that way. The law was designed to point that out to you because we tend to think, I'm a pretty good person. God says, okay, don't do that. Oh, I want to. See, you're not. That's the purpose of the law. Why? So that you will know that you need Jesus. The law was designed to point out to you that you are naturally addicted to separating from God so that you would embrace God through Jesus. And that the law is supposed to expose this tendency of separation so we'll turn to life. So we'll return to God by reminding us that that is not what we do by instinct. That is not who we are. And that's what you see in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The law doesn't teach you to be good. The law teaches you that you need Jesus. The law does not teach you to be good. The law is designed to teach you that you're not so that you will embrace Jesus. A lot of us are trying to use the law to become good. The law was not designed to teach you to become good. The law was to teach you that you're not and that you need Jesus. And the law, Paul elsewhere describes it as a tutor or a nursemaid designed to bring you up into Jesus, not to teach you to be good on your own. And so here Paul says, see, that's the death we live. We'll come back to this thought in a minute, but we've got to finish. So he does that. Verse 58, therefore, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What is this work that we're supposed to abound in? We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's apply what we've talked about so far before we get to Paul's application. See, our lives are full of death. And as I just said, that death is not just the end of physical life. Because separation is death. When God had told Adam and Eve, the, the day you eat of this, dying you shall die, 
you'll notice if you read the account, and by the way, in a couple weeks, we're going to study the account. We're going to go to Genesis 3 in two weeks. But you'll notice that the account, after Adam and Eve sinned, there's very little talk of physical death. I mean, Adam and Eve don't drop dead. They don't die in chapter 3. They don't die in chapter 4. There's really... They, and you'll have, suddenly have Adam going, oh, Lord, my back hurts. What's going on? Oh, you're dying, Adam. You don't have that. There's very little discussion of physical decay in Genesis 3. There's a reference to the fact that work will be hard, the sweat of your brow, that sort of thing. Childbirth is going to be painful. But it doesn't talk about death in the sense of physical death that we get so obsessed about. But you start seeing death immediately, Right? Because God walks into the garden and says, Adam, what happened? And Adam goes, the woman you gave me. He breaks two relationships at once. The woman. And really, <laughs> she came from you. So this is both of your fault. And he separates from God and from Eve. That's got to be a painful moment. Eve's under the bus going, well, because it's separation. And then the next, then what's the next thing that happened? Separation between two brothers. And that separation becomes so severe that then it does end up in what? Physical death. As Cain kills Abel. But they were separated long before then. And we live these lives full of death long before we experience physical death. And so we pretend and grasp at eternity, but we're really bad at it. But listen to, our, listen to our lives as we grasp at eternity. And I will always love you. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and hurt you. Uh-huh. Titanic. I'll never let go, Jack. Five minutes later. Blah, 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 blah. So we have all these claims of, I will love you always, or at least until the commercial break. I mean, it just doesn't, we, we long for the eternity of it, but we're not good at the eternity of it, because we're always breaking relationships. And we separate, and we break apart, and we wound, and we retreat. And we're constantly violating the law of one another. We're constantly violating the law of one another, and constantly demonstrating our selfness. I've walked in the last few years through divorce with two different men. And they will both tell you, and, and, and a woman who's walked through divorce tell you the same thing, it feels like death. When you've had separation between two people who love each other, whether they're spouses, parent, child, brother, sister, best friends. Oh, it aches, it hurts. Why? Because it's death. Because it's tearing apart something that was originally intended to be together. And so this is all death, because death is separation. You've got to burn that into your head. Death is separation. Death is separation. And we live lives of death all the time. Why? Because we practice death. Because we live to self. Sometimes, we, sometimes the other person is being more self than me self, and so then that other person injures me, but then what do I have to do? So now I have to protect myself, and we are divided and so we live lives that way, and our whole world is addicted to this, that even though we claim that we're going to love each other, we can't do it. 
we don't do it. And so we're constantly doing that. And then physical death is the ultimate completion of death. Physical death is just the final act. That's why we talk about, hey, you know, try to reconcile before the end. A lot of times, if you have the opportunity to have a deathbed experience, people try to what? They try to reconcile before death because what happens? If you don't reconcile before death, then there's no coming back together because the separation is now final. But the separation was already there, just death finished it. And so we're living lives of death. And this is what happened in the Garden of Eden and has been going on since then. And so we violate this law. And so what does God do? God offers reconciliation and reunion through redemption made final in resurrection. I just couldn't resist the alliteration there, re, 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 re. But God offers reconciliation and reunion through redemption that is made final in resurrection. God says, all right, I am going to reconcile you. I'm going to bring you back together. And what does he mean by the reconciliation? Well, first, of course, it's bringing us back into a right relationship with him, but then it's right relationship with others. Why? Because God is God, and then man is made in God's image. And when we separate from life, we separate from God, and then we separate from his image. And that's what you see happen in the Garden of Eden. He separates from God and the image of God. In Adam's case, his wife. Made in the image of God, and he separates from her. The woman you gave me. Pulling back. And that's what we do. And God says, and I'm here to bring you back together. And in the early church, the biggest picture of that was two groups who were known for their separation, Jews and Gentiles. And he goes, and when you look in the church, I've taken the two and I've made them one. And that is a testimony to the world that I stopped tearing people apart and I put them back together because Jews and Gentiles loving each other. By this shall everyone know that you're my disciples, that you love each other. Because God through Christ has been reconciled the world to himself and has made us ministers of reconciliation. How does that reconciliation happen? And the reunion of bringing us back together and bringing us back together finally in the resurrection. But how does that happen? It doesn't just happen by let's forget about the bad stuff. Because you and I both know that you can't reconcile when there's been hurt unless there's been redemption which is why we don't believe in like just universal salvation because there has to be redemption that's why jesus had to die because he's removed the barriers to returning so that he can call us back but you still have to be redeemed he has dealt with it he has offered it it is free but he wants to bring you back together but you're the one who separated so you gotta come back through the shedding of his blood, through his work, through his forgiveness, through his payment, we are redeemed, reconciled. And then that will be our final state in the resurrection as we're together. This is what we're called to. I just, we have to touch 2 Thessalonians. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians. I had it wrong in the notes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
13 through 18. Paul talking to a different church about the same fear of have we messed it, missed it. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as those who don't have hope. He doesn't say you don't grieve. He just says, just, I know you miss them, but understand this isn't the end of your story. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, redemption, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He goes, don't worry, the people you've lost, if they've already been redeemed, there's restoration. Reconciliation, restoration, and reunion. And we won't miss them. In fact, they get their bodies first, and then we'll get ours, and we will be with them and with him, and it will all be together. We have our future secure, so comfort each other. The fact that you're mother died or your brother was killed in persecution, it's okay. It's a comfort, a secure future. So then we come back to Paul's last words in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, therefore, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding means to do it a lot knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So now do the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not worthless, knowing that it's not pointless. What is the work of the Lord? Does this mean we're called to be really, really good? Called to go to church every Sunday or every day and sing a lot of praises and bow a lot? What is this work of the Lord? Well, that's actually pretty simple. Reconciliation through redemption. That's the work of the Lord. While we're here, we are called to worship God. But the work of the Lord is not, oh, just stand around and worship Him all day. No, the work, He's told us this. This is explicit. Tell people! Be ministers of reconciliation through redemption. He says, because that's not, it's not an empty effort. It's not a pointless effort. We call this the good news. That God through Christ was reconciling the world to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we call on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. And so we call people to reconciliation because of his redemption. And that's what we now, that's our job. And it's worth it. And so another way to look at this is we become agents of life combating death. But again, we have to remember, death is separation. We're not just combating physical death. Physical death is the least of the issues. It's the one that most seizes our attention because 
when your body starts giving out, you really have a hard time with selfness because your body starts defeating your ability to have everything you want. But the physical body is the least of our worries. The problem is the death we carry around with us, and we're agents of life combating death, the ongoing separation of selfness. We are fighting the separation of selfness. And so what do we do? We stop doing acts of death, acts of separation. Because that's what sets us apart. The ministry of the kingdom is one of reconciliation, of bringing the groups together, not further splintering them. So what does this look like? Well, we love love everyone, including enemies. We have love towards others. And that was what the early, that's what God did, Jesus did, what the early church did. Paul said, so when we are accused, we conciliate. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are mistreated, we forgive. Because the world throws at us death, and we respond not with more death back at them, but with life. To the point that the worst the world can do is say, well, I'm going to kill you. And say, well, even as you kill me, you are embracing death, but I have embraced life, and you need it. Because even as you end my physical existence, I am united with God, and you aren't, and you need him. Because the very act of your hostility towards me is a sign of your embrace of death. Be reconciled to God. God loves you. Because while I was still his enemy, he loved me. And you are acting terribly. Be reconciled. Because I will not throw death back in your face. Because I have life. And that's why Christians sang in the lion's den and sang as they burned at the stake because they demonstrated life in the face of death. That's why Christians in the Middle East, the Muslims kill them, and they don't go after the Muslims, and we're going to fight back again. No, they pray for them. And they don't pursue revenge but love, and it freaks them out because all they know is death, revenge, separation. And we are ministers of life because we say the worst you can do is fully deliver me into the hands of life. Be reconciled to God. Before I go, you need to hear this. And that's what we become agents of. We avoid the division and we avoid celebrating others' defeat because their defeat is a failure, not a victory. Jesus, God said, I take no joy in the death of the wicked. Jonah sits outside of Nineveh going, these people deserve to die. And God says, well, yeah, but shouldn't I be compassionate? Shouldn't we care about enemies dying? And Jonah's like, no, I don't think so. No, I'm, I'm okay with this. And he's like, Jonah, that's not what we're about. It's life. I am God. I'm the creator of life, and it matters to me. You are made in my image. Shouldn't I care about the image of God? And so we don't do that. We don't go, ha, 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 we're going to, we're going to, ha, look at you. We win, you lose, ha, ha, ha. No, because their loss is loss. And our win, their loss is not our win because our win is Christ. We've been given life by being reconciled by his blood. And so now we avoid that. 
And that's why we don't, that's why we try to preserve relationships. And we step in and try to help marriages be saved and friendships saved and family connections saved. Why? Because we don't want death. Because that tearing apart, oh, it's terrible. And so we try to bring reconciliation, but only through the redemption of Christ. So we're trying to win people, not arguments. And so often in these days so much, the Bible says because of lawlessness, in the last days because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. And I firmly believe and am deeply burdened by the fact that especially in our Western culture right now, in our American culture, in our American Christian culture, our love has grown cold and we're trying not to win the argument. And in winning the argument, we are no longer championing, champion, championing reconciliation, but division. We're highlighting division. We're taking joy in division and how we're better than them and how we're different than them and we're the real and they're the fake and we are, we are better at this and we're better at that and we're better people and they're the bad ones and they're the, they're the, they're the, them, 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 them. We win. And our ministry is supposed to be be reconciled to God. We've embraced life, not separation. And people will separate because that is the nature of people. And people will separate from the truth and people will walk away from love. But we don't propel them away. We beg them to be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you so that you could be called righteous. God died for you. Let me tell you the good news. He longs to redeem you. Embrace life and put away the separation because I am ready for the day that all the separation is over. All the divisions cease. I will never have a bad day with a friend. I will never have that moment of painful relationship that has to be corrected because death will be destroyed. Selfness will cease to gum up my life. Oh, what a day that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory because now we'll not just be together. We'll enjoy being together a whole lot more, right? And this is who we are as a church. This is what we're called to be, agents of reconciliation, full of grace, mercy, and the love of Jesus. That's what makes us shining lights to our community. That's what sets us apart. Our commitment to life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the time we've had to study your word this morning and for your clear teaching. Lord, just thank you for being really honest with us. Lord, we are addicted to death. We don't like it. We hate it. But we... By, by pure reflex, separate from you. We hate to be told what to do. Lord, this last year, our whole culture has been one big testimony to nobody should tell me what to do. Nobody should ever infringe upon myself. And Lord, so often your call of reconciliation has been lost in self-interest, in sanctimony, in anger and division. 
We have separated in our relationships. We have separated in our society. We have separated in our communities. We have separated in our families. We have not demonstrated the grace and mercy of Christ. So Lord, may that not be who we are as Beans Corner. May we, because of our trust in your redemption, by shedding your blood on the cross, dying for us, may we now live the life of resurrection. May we live lives of reconciliation based on your redemption. May we be, just in our community here in the greater Franklin County area, so obviously different that we will shine like bright lights, a city on a hill. And may those around us say, wow, you're so different. In a world full of angry voices and divisiveness, you call for reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins and the loving of enemies. And Lord, we know that there are a lot of hurting people out there who are lonely, who are scared, or who are upset, who are so hungry for the grace and mercy that you offer. So may we become sources of that and help us encourage one another, help us do it together. And Lord, as you raise us up, even as we're raising up shepherds, Lord, so that we might help others do this, so that we might work together as a team, as your people, as your church, to work together to do this work. That's worth doing. That we would work together as your church that gathers at Bean's Corner to be all about the mission you have given us, which is to call people into your kingdom through the marvelous grace and mercy that we find at the cross and that we ourselves are dependent on. And so may we come together and work together and cooperate so that we might be a light to our community of the grace and mercy, the reconciliation that we find in Christ. Lord, I pray that that will be what Bean's Corner means. Lord, our culture has gotten angrier and more divided, so man, your, your gospel is more relevant than ever. May it be who we are. May it be what we do. Empower us this week to work to live these lives that you have given us as we embrace you, the Lord of life. And I pray all these things, and I pray for our church, your church, in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.